0: You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. The Bay Area is due for a big quake, and San Francisco has been working to get certain residential buildings retrofitted for seismic safety. The risk is that without these retrofits, the buildings could collapse, which is exactly what happened in 1989.
1: Loma Prieta was a real wake-up call for a lot of people in the building department.
0: But about a decade after the city realized that there was a potential problem, thousands of people still live in buildings that could pancake in a major quake.
2: I know that we had a completion of work time period in 2021. And, you know, are all 16% of those in that 2021 cohort that are just a little bit late? Or how do they separate out?
0: I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Civic.
2: The report is clear and thorough and should put the public's mind at ease about the safety of these retrofits. So good work there, DBI, and we look forward to hearing that presentation shortly.
0: This is Angus McCarthy, president of the Building Inspection Commission, which is an oversight body to the Department of Building Inspection. He was looking ahead to a report that the department was about to give as part of an update on the city's seismic retrofit program, focused specifically on gas safety. A mission local investigation revealed in April that in the course of strengthening buildings to protect against collapse during an earthquake, some builders had raised the alarm that concrete was being poured on top of gas lines without a protective sleeve around them. This creates a potentially explosive problem if the unprotected lines were to break during an earthquake. When that story came out, there were no good estimates of the size of this problem. And nearly 5,000 buildings in the city were subject to the retrofit program. Now the Department of Building Inspection and PG&E have audited the seismic retrofit program to get a more precise estimate. Jeff Buckley, Policy and Public Affairs Director for the Department of Building Inspection, explained to the oversight body how just 75 buildings were identified that might have gas lines encased in concrete like this.
3: We began with 4,942 projects, which is the entirety of the mandatory soft story retrofit program. And through the course of our review, we were able to review all of those properties. What we did after reviewing all of the projects, we reviewed all the inspection records and then eliminated any property that did not have reinforcing steel, okay to pour, or gray beams in the inspection notes. These elements would be present if any gas line would be potentially running through a gray beam or new concrete foundation element. And so we were able to remove about 30% of those properties from our investigation, and so we retained 3,497 properties at this point in our investigation. At that point, we talked with PG&E and engaged with them, and really, we cross-referenced the addresses that we had, as well as... To determine if PG&E records showed that these gas lines were cased or if they were replaced with newer gas lines or newer gas pipes and thus upgraded to better withstand uh, earth movement. And because those pipes were upgraded or PG&E data confirmed it was previously cased, DBI and PG&E believe the underlying concern of gas line safety had been adequately addressed at those buildings. And As I mentioned, we have representatives from PG&E who can talk with you about both the methodology or answer any questions related to the gas pipe replacement program. But as a result of that review, we were able to reduce the total to 520 addresses. And so then we focused our attention on the addresses the PG&E records show had not been upgraded yet, in which our inspector codes indicated have had a gray beam or concrete pour at the address. And so inspection services pulled the plans for those addresses, conducted a manual review, and checked it to see if new gray beams were added in the front or rear of the property, or whether if there was any possibility that the new beam and the gas line intersected using Google Earth and also paper vision. And so if it was, again, this is kind of gets back to our values, if it was at all possible that the two would intersect, our inspectors flagged those addresses and set them aside for in-person site visits. PG&E also reviewed those addresses and confirmed the location of the gas lines and whether it crossed with a gray beam. And we were able to reduce the investigative focus to 246 addresses. And so our next step after this was both PG&E as well as DBI conducted in-person site inspections for all of the remaining 246 properties to determine if some were in fact case. And in PG&E's case, they did a more intensive review and they were able to conclude that 118 properties had not been cased. And DBI conducted, as I mentioned, our own site inspections at 246 properties to determine whether the gas lines intersected at all or were near or ran through or really were undetermined relative to the new concrete that was added. And so of PG&E's 118 confirmed uncased properties, DBI determined that 75 could have the possibility of a gas line running through a new foundation element. And so ultimately, 75 properties really could not be ruled out at this point in the investigation.
0: The department and PG&E say potential safety concerns at these 75 sites should be resolved by the end of 2022 either by finding that they were safe after all, or by doing additional construction to mitigate the concern about gas lines going through new concrete foundations. But here's one thing that was only peripherally mentioned at the meeting. There are still hundreds of buildings identified as seismically risky that are required to do a retrofit under this program that haven't yet finished the actual construction. In nearly all cases, owners have filed for or been issued permits— But about 16% haven't yet completed the actual construction. Last August, the city extended the last deadline for all buildings in the program to have finished construction. That extended deadline was three months ago. Nearly 800 buildings haven't met it. It was the commission's newest member, J.R. Epler, who brought this question up to the building department's Jeff Buckley.
2: It'd be interesting to see, you know, to me to see... For those 16% of uh, the identified retrofit program buildings that have not complied with the retrofit requirements to see where they are in the enforcement process and see how long they've been out. I know that we had a completion of work time period in 2021 and, you know, are all 16% of those in that 2021 cohort that are just a little bit late or how do they separate out and what are the steps being undertaken in order to ensure that they very, very promptly become compliant. I'm sure this is something the Commission has addressed in the past. So again, thank you, Supervisors, for bearing with me as I make that comment.
3: Um, So the department tracks that information and distributes it, I believe, on a monthly basis, if not more frequently. So I can say in terms of the non-compliant buildings that we have from those buildings they're both in tier two, tier three, as well as tier four. So I believe that that's kind of the, you know, where those buildings lie in terms of within the enforcement process. And then as far as where we are now, you know, I think we can come back to you as a commission and kind of talk about the enforcement process on a kind of go forward basis, if that's something that you would like for staff to be able to kind of drill down on at a future date.
0: The odds are good that the Bay Area will experience a big quake in the next few decades, maybe even a catastrophic one, causing damage across a broad region. Which means the people who live in these buildings, by our back of the envelope math, several thousand people, are at risk of experiencing a building collapse when the next big one hits. And virtually all of these buildings are rent controlled. So today, we're gonna talk in some depth about the mandatory seismic retrofit program, why it exists, and what we know about its implementation. Just a note, we sent a list of questions to the Department of Building Inspection which runs this mandatory program. A spokesperson highlighted the success of the program with nearly all properties having permits and 84% having completed the retrofits. We asked for a lot of detailed breakdowns of the department's enforcement and those numbers would take weeks to compile. We'll bring you an update when we have them. For now, let's back up a little. The buildings this program focuses on are called Soft Story Buildings. Back in 2019, pre-pandemic, and before the deadline for making these fixes had arrived, my colleague Noah Arroyo sat down with Bill Strawn, who was then the Manager of Public Affairs at the Department of Building Inspection.
4: So in a Soft Story... Pancake thing. Yeah. When a Soft Story building is injured in a quake, or... What is it? Not injured. Damaged. (laughs) Damaged. Thank you for that. I mean, it's not like I write or anything. It's not like I'm a language guy. (laughs) So in an earthquake, when a soft story building is damaged, what it looks like is that first floor that's weak, pancakes down under the weight of the upper floors.
0: Bill knows all about soft story buildings.
4: It tends
1: to be these kinds of buildings where on the ground floor level, the street level, there's either a commercial space or an open garage. And if it was a garage and you actually went inside, you probably wouldn't see very many columns or pillars reinforcing that first floor. And above that ground floor level usually are where residential units are. Sometimes it's one stories, two stories. The particular program that got into the mandatory seismic retrofitting involved three or more stories with five or more units. And the whole theory that Mary Ed Lee had when that was enacted in April of twenty thirteen was to go after the larger apartment buildings that had more people living in them.
4: And the way that you describe them, these buildings sound like the iconic San Francisco buildings, say a retail space on the first floor, a garage, and then above them, all of the residences. It's what I think of, at least when I think of San Francisco. Yes, it's 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 a very
1: typical type of construction. There was a lot of it done in the 30s and 40s and 50s. You will find them actually in just about every neighborhood. They were very common in the marina. I think when you think about Loma Prieta 30 years ago and the marina, there were literally thousands of those kinds of soft-story buildings. In fact, seven or eight of them actually collapsed. And that had really only to do with the nature of that particular earthquake, you know, whose epicenter was in Santa Cruz. And by the time it got to the marina area, didn't have quite as much power as might have been more destructive. Loma Prieta was a real wake-up call for a lot of people in the building department. I mean, at that time, I was still working for a marketing communications company downtown. I wasn't actually working for the city at that time. But the wake-up call had the creation of this community action plan for seismic safety, which went by the acronym of CAPS and high on the list of things to do over the next 30 years for that CAPS group was a soft story retrofit program and probably a mandatory program. There was some hesitation about that because, you know, when you have a mandatory program, then the capital costs can be passed through. And there was some political sensitivity about did we want to cause rent increases on the basis of, you know, getting stronger buildings less likely to collapse. Overall, I think the decision was the right one, which was, yeah, we need to go ahead and do this, especially in these larger apartment buildings. So I think the proposal was put together primarily by that earthquake safety implementation group that's now become the Office of Resiliency, and, you know, that functions under the city administrator So we have now a chief resiliency officer, Brian Strong, and they essentially keep up the good work of trying to keep strengthening the buildings. But they see the soft story program as a good initial effort to have property owners take some responsibility and go beyond just voluntarily deciding whether or not to seismically retrofit to actually following a four-tiered. Program
4: Because the voluntary program was incredibly ineffective, wasn't it?
1: Yes. We weren't getting that many owners who were stepping forward and saying, yeah, it's probably a good idea. I should protect my tenants. I should protect my building, my assets, so to speak. And I think a lot of it just had to do with, even for people who have lived through other earthquakes in San Francisco, they just sort of say, well, you know, if it happens, it happens, but I'm not going to worry too much about it. Right. So I I think having this kind of requirement from the city just focused everybody's mind and said, okay, this is the right thing to do, so we're going to do it.
0: You might say if an earthquake happens, it happens. But the reality is it is going to happen. It's just a matter of when. Geologists have found that large earthquakes have happened about every 100 to 200 years along the Hayward Fault, where large tectonic plates meet in the Bay Area. The last major quake from that fault was in 1868, which means it would be reasonable for another to happen sometime around now. Earthquakes happen in response to a rupture, and that's when the tectonic plates on either sides of a fault smash into each other or slide past one another. And a rupture along one fault can have a domino effect, leading to ruptures along other faults. San Francisco is sandwiched between the Hayward Fault to the east and the San Andreas Fault to the west. And there are many, many other faults throughout the Bay Area. Based on the latest research that factors in how these faults might interact with each other, there's a 72% chance that a major quake will strike the Bay Area in the next few decades. By major, I mean at least a magnitude 6.7, like the Northridge quake in 1994. That one killed 57 people and injured 9,000. There's a lower but still 51% chance that we'll see an even bigger quake that could cause massive damage and loss of life across a wide region.
1: I think it's probably a safe guess that when the next big one does hit, it's going to be pretty devastating in terms of how many buildings are prepared and what the impact on those buildings will be. You know, earthquake science is really still quite imperfect. And while most engineers who are in the business at least keep telling us at the building department that, uh, you know, we're doing everything we can to strengthen these buildings and to resist earthquakes. Until you actually have the next major one, you won't be able to assess how effective our theories are. But right now, we're doing what we think will work based on lessons learned from studying earthquakes literally all around the world all the time.
0: So the retrofits to stave off building collapses are mandatory. Because although we know that there's a risk of collapse, a voluntary program wasn't motivating property owners to do these retrofits. There are a lot of reasons why that might be, which we'll get into more later. But I should point out that the mandatory program also has a lot of success. Of nearly 5,000 buildings identified as seismically risky, almost all have plans on file to get those retrofits done. Also, the building inspection department didn't just order every property owner with a soft story to fix the building or else by the same date. They organized them into four tiers based on safety risk level. So buildings chock full of vulnerable tenants got prioritized over, say, commercial buildings with few residential units. Back in 2019, before the pandemic, Bill Strawn seemed pretty confident about compliance overall.
1: And the good news is is that when you look at where we are right now, last September was the deadline for submitting plans for retrofits in Tier 4 And those are all commercial buildings. They were deliberately left to be the last tier so that businesses in that tier would have had plenty of time since 2013, 2014 to kind of get ready for any dislocation that the retrofit might cause. Of course, people being people, that hasn't prevented a lot of these businesses from saying, gee... I didn't know I had to do this. Now you're really killing my business. Now I don't have enough money set aside to protect my staff and so on and so forth. So we'll see if, in fact, there's a push at some point to extend that date. But, you know, the way the program works is every September 15th since 2013 or 14 is the deadline for actually submitting the plans to do the retrofit, and then you have two years to complete the retrofit. So given the fact that last September 15th was when Tier 4's deadline was, technically they should have the work done by September 15th of 2020. And I guess we'll have to see how many of them are compliant by that time. We have, I would say, it's like 95-plus percent compliance on all four tiers for meeting the deadline of turning in the plans. But because we've been in such a busy building environment uh, with a lot of demands on engineers and contractors, there are a lot of owners who haven't been yet able to complete the jobs. Right now, we're about two-thirds complete, about 65 percent complete. Total of about 4,900 buildings in all four tiers, and I think there's like 3,200 that have been actually completed.
0: Well, things looked a lot different in September 2020 than they did in 2019 when this interview was recorded. The coronavirus shut down the city almost completely, and while things have largely reopened, here's where we are today. Of the 4,941 buildings in those four tiers, 784 haven't completed the construction work. Like I said, the majority of those have applied for or received a permit, and it's important to note that you get a certain amount of time, usually a year, to actually do the work once you've gotten the permit. So what are some of the reasons why, years after this program started and past the deadline for implementation, some of this work hasn't been finished? We'll get into that when we return to this story about San Francisco's mandatory earthquake retrofit program. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. Newsmatch, the nationwide effort to fund local news by doubling your donation, is still going through the end of the year. Big thanks to Ernesto Aguilar and the Rob family who recently pitched in to help the San Francisco Public Press and Civic keep producing thoughtful, in-depth stories. You can join in by making a contribution at sfpublicpress.org donate. Donate once and your money will be doubled and make it a monthly gift for lasting impact. Donations are wonderful and make our work possible. But if that doesn't work for you right now, you can still help support us by staying close and spreading the word. Sign up for our email newsletter to keep up with the latest investigations and explainers. Share something you read or heard on social media. Or just talk about us with a friend. We want our work to reach people, and you can help us do that. We appreciate it. Let's get back to our story about San Francisco's mandatory earthquake retrofit program to strengthen buildings and prevent collapses. The city started worrying about this after Loma Prieta and had compiled a rough list of soft story buildings about a decade ago. So why don't property owners make the repairs? Here's Bill Strawn again, formerly from the Department of Building Inspection, in 2019.
1: We get all kinds of explanations of, yeah, I can't find an engineer. I can't find a contractor. I don't have enough money set aside to actually do this right now. And the building department's whole philosophy is to try and work with these owners because we want the buildings to be strengthened and for people to be protected. We're not really interested in punishing owners who miss deadlines. On the other hand, the deadlines are there for a good reason, that we haven't had a major earthquake in, a, in the past 30 years, and the geotech people all around the country are saying, we're due for one. So the sooner it gets done, the better the opportunity is that we won't find ourselves in a, a situation where a lot of people are going to be injured or killed as a result of that earthquake
0: it can be hard to find someone to do the work when their skills are in extremely high demand and retrofitting a building with loss of units can be very expensive
1: we have this PACE financing program that is with a private banking organization of some kind but you can amortize the cost of the retrofit over 20 years and have it added to your property tax bill. So if the primary reason you're not doing the work is you can't have enough money or a bank, a regular bank like Bank of America or Wells or Chase or somebody won't lend you money, then you could ostensibly qualify for that program. And then whoever owns the property would be paying a little more property tax over the next 20 years, but presumably that would offer them the kind of financing to enable them to move forward. If money were the issue, then I think that's a potential solution. If it's a labor shortage and or a technical shortage like an engineer, that's a little harder to deal with because Yeah, we understand there's a finite number who are available, even though I do periodically encourage people to talk to either the American Institute of Architects here in San Francisco or the structural engineers of Northern California, both of whom have fairly large membership-based organizations and many of their members have had some experience in doing retrofits. So while the department can't recommend any particular entity like that, architect or engineer, We can at least tell them, go talk to these professional organizations and maybe you can find someone who's able to do what you need to have done here.
0: In some cases, the paperwork is done, even if the construction isn't. Noah Arroyo, my co-worker at the public press, who has reported thoroughly on the city's efforts to deal with soft story buildings, asked about Tier 1 and 2 buildings, the riskiest ones with the most vulnerable residents.
4: So I don't suspect that these buildings, say in the Tier 1 and Tier 2, only just became non-compliant. I suspect that they've been non-compliant for some time because the deadlines have long since passed. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, no, I think that's a fair assumption, that we
1: know that a number of different owners haven't yet finished what they've started. I guess the good news as far as we're concerned is that they did file plans to tell us how they were going to do it, which certainly shows us that there's an intent to do the retrofit But some of them, as I said, I think it's a combination of multiple reasons. And we haven't really done a study. We don't really have the staff resources to do that kind of study. And I know I talked to one of your reporters several times about why it's very difficult to get a really reliable set of answers as to why people hesitate or have hesitated, even though the most common excuses that are given to window eight and our soft story staff is, yeah, I can't find a contractor. I can't find an engineer. I've kind of run out of money. I need to find other resources in order to be able to finish this. And so far, you know, we've been taking it, I would say, easy on the code enforcement side, even though we do have a stipulated process. And when people aren't responsive they are called in for a director's hearing, and they have to explain to a hearing officer why they're not doing what they are supposed to be doing. And then that hearing officer will make a determination of, okay, I'm going to give you some more time, or, you know, you have 30 days to get things going on this, or we're going to issue an order of abatement against the property. So far, we haven't really started doing that, but... We are approaching the point where we will start doing that if it
4: looks like owners just aren't being responsive. Well, so a lot of these buildings have been on that list as noncompliant, at least for months, if not in some cases, I'm assuming years. So at what point do we get to where the Department of Building Inspection wants to start utilizing those consequences and really pressing owners to retrofit? What is that point that we're going to cross and when does it happen? Well, I think it's
1: dependent upon the soft story staff telling the director and the deputy directors that, hey, you know, we're not getting response on this. We're not even getting return phone calls when we call to say what is going on here. Uh, And then a recommendation will be made essentially to the director, and the director is going to say – okay, you know, on especially those early tiers 1, 2, and 3, we need to start this code enforcement proceeding. And that, I wouldn't be surprised if we get into that, you know, before the end of this year or early into the new year.
0: And let me cut in real quick to say that by now, all of the Tier 1 buildings have finished all the retrofit work.
1: We'll make proactive phone calls to try and find out what might be going on And particularly if, you know, there are tenants living in the building and they're concerned and they are complaining to us, then that is an added reason for the department to say, hey, you know, you've had this for a long time now. You're well past the deadline. You really need to get some work going on here. So if we find people are legitimately stuck for some reason, then we try to be reasonable about accommodating that. But I think the The long-term goal here is still that we want strengthened buildings so that people aren't injured or killed. And, you know, we remind the owners that this is a liability for you as the owner because ultimately you're the responsible party here. And we're not doing this because we want to give you a hard time.
4: We're doing this because it's for your own safety and the safety of the people who live in your building. Could you give a quick rundown of the minimum to maximum consequences that a building owner can face if they don't retrofit?
1: Oh, you're talking about from like the penalty point of view? Mm -hmm. I suppose the maximum is tied to litigation because if an owner is responsive and is not responsive and we essentially issue an order of abatement and they're not responsive to the order of abatement – that puts a financial encumbrance on the property, so you know you can't get a loan. Sometimes your insurance gets canceled. There are consequences that you, as a building owner, probably don't want to have to deal with, and the city attorney may litigate. And I say may because the city attorney has a code enforcement section that deals with these non responsive situations, and they have to make their own decision about which ones they go after. But I think suffice it to say that it's not so much the building department's fees or added-on penalties that are going to be so troubling as the additional legal and financial encumbrances.
4: You're saying that simply because those fees have already been laid on top of those buildings. They haven't worked in a lot of these cases. Well, right, or
1: that hasn't been enough incentive for them to actually take the action step I suppose there may be some examples of owners that just feel like, hey, it's my property, I don't have to do this if I don't want to do it, and they have this kind of almost political opposition to having been told by the government to do something. But I haven't actually heard that we get that kind of resistance in this program. I suspect myself that it has more to do with family situations multiple owners in the same family may have inherited the building they may not have cash to do what is required and they may not be that sophisticated in terms of figuring out well how do we comply here so i think that profile is a little more likely for us to have to deal with than an outright resistor
0: again this was two years ago Since then, the deadline for the tier of buildings that was last in line has been moved by one year to September 2021. We reached out to the department to see if we could learn how many property owners have qualified for financial assistance and how much assistance is even available now. We also wanted to know how many cases have been referred to directors' hearings or been litigated against. Specific numbers on that would take weeks to compile, but the department spokesperson rejected the notion that enforcement hasn't been working citing that 84% overall completion record. And that was a similar message to the one we got two years ago.
4: I'll be honest, the way that you describe this, it sounds like a complex and understandable situation, but it does sound somewhat intractable. Is there any other way to look at this other than this is just a problem that will not ever be fully solved?
1: Well, I think hope always springs eternal. Human ingenuity never ceases to amaze me. So I would think that we should be able to figure this out, particularly given the number of buildings that we're talking about that are non-compliant. You know, the good news to me is that most people have wanted to comply and most people are complying. And, you know, that's consistent with what we find in the building department overall. We issue something like 80 or 85,000 permits in the course of a year, and literally 95% of those comply. Yeah, there's only this sort of roughly 5% group that, for whatever series of reasons, aren't in compliance. So I think for the most part, we have a sophisticated and aware audience out there of building owners. They know they live in one of the world's highest at risk earthquake zones. And I think most of them do want to protect the people who live in those buildings and their buildings. So I'm still optimistic that we'll get to those who have other circumstances that are kind of slowing them down and not making them comply quite as rapidly as our deadlines would like.
0: However those circumstances may or may not have changed, overall compliance with the program has been high but thousands of people still live in buildings that are at risk of collapse and a major quake. You can find an interactive map of Soft Story buildings at sfdbi.org slash softstory. There's a downloadable dataset there too, but a searchable list of addresses is a little trickier to get, so we'll post that on our website, sfpublicpress.org. Big thanks to Noah Arroyo for co-reporting this episode and covering this issue for nearly a decade. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic comes to you from KSFP-LP at 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Our team includes producer and contributor Mel Baker and assistant producer Liana Wilcox. Civic airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP. New episodes every Thursday. Thanks for listening.